Why do marriages break up? Depending on who you read, somewhere around one in four marriages don't make it. That's 25% that are doomed to failure. And the United States has the highest divorce rate of any civilized country in the world. And unfortunately, as Christian pollster George Barna points out, there is no difference in the statistics between the world and the church. Studies suggest that there are four main reasons that marriages dissolve. First, someone, either husband or wife or both, become unhappy. You see, we approach marriage with certain expectations, and when those expectations are not met, we bail. Usually sounds something like this, he just doesn't communicate, or she doesn't make me happy anymore, and it becomes, I I don't love him, I don't love her anymore. Now, while we are on the subject of failed expectations, let me share some thoughts. You see, I'm going to be speaking to the husbands today, but, but I feel that I need to say some things to, to the wives, because I, there always seem to be floating around some unrealistic expectations that we must address. And so, to set the record straight from a piece entitled, To Women Everywhere for Men Who Have Had Enough, number one, all men see in only 16 colors, peach is not a fruit, I mean, peach is a fruit, not a color. Number two, if you ask a question you don't want an answer to, expect an answer you don't want to hear. Number three, shopping is not a sport, and no, we're never going to think of it that way. Next, crying is blackmail. Next, yes and no are perfectly acceptable answers to almost every question. Next, come to us with a problem only if you want help solving it. That's what we do. Next, foreign films are best left to foreigners. (laughs) Unless it's Bruce Lee or some war flick where it doesn't really matter what they're saying anyway. Next, it is neither in your best interest nor mine to take the quiz together. No, it doesn't matter which quiz. Next, and this is I like, anything we said six months ago is inadmissible in an argument. In fact, all comments become null and void after seven days. <laughs> Next, <laughs> if something we said can be interpreted in two ways and one of the ways makes you sad or angry, we meant the other one. Next, you can tell us to do something or tell us how to do something, but not both. And finally, thanks for listening. We know we'll have to sleep on the couch, but we like it. It's like camping. (laughs) Seriously, that's just to add a little levity, since I am going to be talking to the husbands today. In fact, I'd say, guys, that many of those are realistic expectations, uh, so don't feel like you're off the hook, and besides, you'll be back on the hook by the end of our time. We're asking the question, why do marriages break up? First reason, someone is unhappy. A second reason is financial stress. In failed marriages, finances were somehow involved in 75% of them. A third reason marriages don't make it is infidelity or adultery. And as the drama uh, showed, there is, today there is more than one way 
to be unfaithful. In fact, statistics show that 50 to 60% of men are somehow involved in that garbage. Finally, the fourth factor that often contributes to divorce is abuse, verbal, emotional, or physical abuse. Four of the most frequent reasons people get divorced, unhappiness, financial stress, infidelity, and abuse. And it may just be that one or more of those factors are contributing to your marital discontent right now. But hey, you're a Christian, you don't want to be a statistic, so, so you're keeping it together. If you were like anyone, everyone else, you'd be divorced, but you put on the happy face and few, if anyone know, but as I said last week, living under the same roof with that little piece of paper does not a biblical marriage make. Maybe, maybe you're convinced you deserve better, that Prince Charming or Cinderella is out there somewhere. You just happen to marry the wrong person, but now you're stuck, you know, till death do us part. I would suggest that while one or more of those factors contribute to the majority of divorces or perhaps your marital prison, the real reason for discontent for Christians is we don't know how or worse, um, we don't do what God, the creator of marriage, expects of husbands and wives. I, I am absolutely convinced that if a husband and a wife together would commit to their respective biblical roles and responsibilities, they would experience more joy and more contentment than they ever thought possible. So with that in mind, we're going to look at the biblical roles and responsibilities of the husband this week, and then we'll look at the wife next. So if you are a husband here this morning, I want to strongly encourage you to take notes. Your wife will be. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 and following says this, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but, she shall be, but, but, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ in the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to, live, is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. This is the most definitive passage on marriage in the New Testament. 
Later, when Paul writes to the church at Colossae, he kind of shortens that lengthy passage into two verses and says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. So from all that, what is the husband's role in the marital relationship? We actually saw it in verse 23 of Ephesians 5. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. What is the role of the husband? The role of the husband is to be the head. But what does that mean? See, the word was used to speak of the literal head on top of your body, but it was also used metaphorically to speak of someone in a position of authority. It speaks of being a leader. And so, Paul is saying that the husband is to be the head, he is to be the leader uh, in his marriage and in his home. The example that, that, that Paul cites, of course, is Christ and the church. Last week, I suggested that the marriage relationship is to be the picture of, uh, of Christ and His bride, the church. So men are to be the head, and you say, some of you, perhaps gender-specific, say, great. Husbands get to be the lords, wives get to be the servants. I did not say that. We need to talk about what biblical headship means, because it is true that men have abused this role since the beginning of time. They have become despotic dictators, thinking that this role gives them the right to be the boss, to justify physical and mental abuse, to, quote, keep women in their place, to demean and control women, treating them as slaves, working them to death, all the while neglecting them. After all, they're not, much, they're not worth much more than a piece of property, a slave. In fact, in the Greek world, there were some instances where slaves had more rights than wives. And in the in the Jewish world, a Jewish man would wake up every day and pray something like this, God, I thank you that you have not made me a woman, a Gentile, or a slave. Nice guy. What then is true biblical headship? We must first talk about what it is not, and we must eliminate any idea of inferiority and superiority. Like the men are somehow superior to women. That is not what Paul is talking about. Listen to me. Men and women were created to equally bear the image of God. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 3, it says that husbands are to recognize that women are fellow heirs of the grace of life. So we are not talking about men being smarter or better suited to the task. And many of you women go, well, I know that. We're not talking about superiority or inferiority. We're simply talking about, I want you to get this word, we're simply talking about function. And for the marital relationship to work best, the designer, the creator of marriage set up roles, roles that go all the way back to creation, as we saw last week, where the husband is to be the head of the home. But I still haven't answered the question, what is biblical headship? The Word has a life-giving ring to it. Now, I want you to get this. It speaks of being a protector, a provider, a lover, and a developer. Does that sound a little better, ladies? It speaks of being responsible for someone. 
far from being authoritarian. It is one who supports the life of another. Responsible, yes. Leader, yes. Loving servant leadership is what I'm going to call it. It is responsibility, not rank. Sacrifice, not selfishness. Uh, duty, not domination. That's what Paul is talking about. You see, headship defined this way becomes a high and holy calling. It becomes an awesome responsibility, overwhelming responsibility. But if Christian women, wives and mothers, have a legitimate complaint against the church, it is this. All the focus on marriage seems to place uh, wives, uh, seems to, uh, to talk about how wives are to submit to their own husbands. I suppose that there has been more written about submission than anything else. Men are to be the head, women are to submit. End of discussion. We go away from messages and books and seminars and conferences on marriage, and that's what we remember most. That message has been so ingrained in the evangelical church that there is little room left to talk about respective responsibilities of husbands and wives. Guys get to be the bosses, wives get to be the servants, that's it. The one thing I want for us in this series is to understand as much as possible the teaching from the Word of God about what a biblical marriage, what a godly marriage is. And while it does include headship, male headship, and female submission. If that's all you take from this, I have failed miserably. And all of that then brings me to the main thing I want to talk to you about this morning. From this passage, the primary responsibility under that headship, the primary responsibility of the husband is this, the husband is to love the wife. could say it this way, this headship is to be governed by love. We've already read the passage. Pay careful attention to verses 25 and following when Paul begins speaking directly to the husbands as I am going to do today. Husbands, love your wife. This is not a statement of fact. It's not even a suggestion. It is a command. Love your wife. Now, sometimes you hear something like, the husbands are commanded to love their wives. A wife is commanded to submit to, respect her husband. That, that's it. You, you may even hear that wives are nowhere commanded to love their husbands. They only have to respect them. That's not exactly true. Titus chapter 2 tells older women to teach. I find that very interesting. To teach younger women to love their husbands. That tells me that love isn't something that just naturally happens, that it is something that can be taught that we can learn and grow in love. In principle, it is something that wives are commanded to do as well. But there is something to the fact that husbands are told in more than one place, love your wife. Paul says it, verse 25, love your wife. He becomes ridiculously redundant when he illustrates it in verse 28. Love your wife like you love yourself. Tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 19, husbands, love your wife. Apparently, there is an issue that we need to accept. Why would Paul tell us this? Doesn't it seem obvious? I mean, we don't live in a culture of arranged marriages. I was the one who asked her to marry me. Of course I love her. 
And, and the fact is, most of us men cannot differentiate between love and lust, love and infatuation, love and like, love and butterflies in the stomach, which might very well just be the flu. Most people in our society don't even know what love is. We love our wives. We love baseball. We love apple pie all at the same time. Doesn't that make you feel warm and fuzzy? Ladies, your husband loves you just like he loves Cam Newton. Just exactly what does Paul mean when he says, guys, love your wife? Let me, let, let me, let me share some thoughts from, some, from children about love. Because, you see, I think they got it right. A group of professional people posed this question to a group of four- to eight-year-olds. Um, what does love mean? Here are some of their answers. Rebecca, age eight. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore, so my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. I think she got it right. Billy, age four, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. <laughs> Carl, age five, love is when a girl puts on perfume and the boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. Chrissy, age six, love is when you go out and eat and uh, go out to eat and give somebody most of your French fries without making them give you any of theirs. I think she got it right. Danny, age seven, love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure that it tastes okay. <laughs> Emily, age eight, love is when you kiss all the time. Then when you get tired of kissing, you still want to be together and talk more. My mommy and daddy are like that. They look gross when they kiss. <laughs> Hold on to that, Emily. <laughs> Noel, age seven. Love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt, then he wears it every day. I think he got that right. Chris, age eight. Love is when mommy sees daddy smelly and sweaty and still says he's handsomer than Robert Redford. Jessica, age eight, last one. You really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. People forget. It's interesting to me how they largely got it right. So what does Paul mean when he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church? Let me, let me give you several principles of this kind of love that we see directly from this passage. Gentlemen, I want to see pens moving. I want you to write this down. Number one, men, when we are told to love our wives as Christ loved the church, it means that we are to love them unconditionally. Love her unconditionally, meaning... We do not love her on the basis of her performance. True love is not based on the object love. It is based in the lover. So really? Yeah, let me prove it. Let me ask you a question. 
Just exactly what was it about you that caused God to love and give His Son for you? Was that on the object loved? Romans 5 says, God demonstrated His own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. That is why we were unlovely and unlovable. Christ gave Himself up for us because true love is unconditional. Your love for your wife is not based on fuzzy emotions, although I do believe emotions are involved. Your love for her is not based on what she does or what she does not do how she might look or how she doesn't look, and whether or not she looks as good as the day you married her. What it means is this. Love is a decision. You see, if it can be commanded and taught, love is a decision. It is a commitment to your wife for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, in success and failure, in sorrow and joy, in need and abundance. It doesn't matter what the conditions are, your love is unconditional. Second, love her ceaselessly. What what does this mean? Somewhat related to the first, it means when you pledge your love to her, it doesn't go away with the passing of time or the seasons of life. Rather, your love grows stronger. And, And because love is expressed in action, I didn't say love was action, I said it is expressed in action Your actions demonstrating your love for your wife never cease. The the, the wife says to her husband, you never tell me you love me, to which the husband responds, I told you the day we got married I love you. If it ever changes, I'll let you know. That has no place in the Christian marriage. In very specific, intentional, practical, and I'll add the word verbal ways, you demonstrate your ceaseless love for your wife. Third, you love her sacrificially, as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. This means that true love is costly. The word is agape. You know it. It is a self-sacrificing love where you give yourself up for her. If men, I believe this, if men truly love their wives this way, self-sacrificially, There would be no feminist movement trying to abolish the leadership of men in the home. Here's my question, why would they? And so, you should ask yourself this question often. In what way have I lovingly sacrificed for my wife recently? Fourth, this one is very subtle but important. It's important for me, for Scott. Give her yourself, not just your gifts. Notice, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Now, think about that with me just for a moment. Jesus could have stayed in heaven and said, I love humans. I think they're cute. I'm going to prove it by giving to them all kinds of gifts. Sunshine, rain, clothing, food, shelter, health, wealth, prosperity, whatever. The Scripture says, greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his own life for his friends. You see, we too can say, I love my wife, 
and we can give her all kinds of gifts. I want her to live in a nice house, drive a nice car, have nice jewelry, nice clothes, nice stuff. But, you know, that means I'm going to have to work a lot. Not really going to see her as much as maybe she'd like, but look at all of the good things that I provide. Guys, listen up. I know that there are exceptions. I know that there are material girls. But most women, I have been doing this for 25 years. I've had countless number of women through my office talking about their marriage who have said to me, all I want is my husband. What they want most are meaningful relationships starting with a deep, satisfying relationship with you. In the over 31 years that Tana and I have been married, over, I I think this would be right, over 90% of our arguments have been over one issue, time. Time. You see, I have a tendency to, to work too much, to put in too much time here, to be overly committed to ministry. That sounds really spiritual, doesn't it? Until you say it the right way. I have not always been the husband and father that I should be. I have neglected them for something else. And it took me a very long time to get it. But every time my wife says, gets upset with me for time, for misplaced priorities, for being overly committed, what she really is saying to me, what she really means is this, I love you, I even like you, and I want to spend time with you. So when you work too much, it does not mean that she's not appreciative of your commitment to do a good job. If she nags you about your job, she doesn't hate your job. It, it's just she loves you. And, and if we are to love them as Christ loved the church, we will give ourselves not just our gifts to our wives. Fifth, if we love them as Christ loved the church, you, we will pour, you will pour yourself out in a way that transforms her. What does this mean? Look at verse 25. And gave himself up for her. Christ gave Himself up for the benefit of His bride. Yes, I knew that it was ultimately for His glory, but still in this text, it says He gave Himself up for her. So also our giving ourselves up for our wives is not for our benefit, not for what we can get out of it. I'll do this so that maybe she'll do that. There is to be no selfish motivation. This giving ourselves up for her is for her benefit. Verses 26 and 27, so that, this is Jesus, he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Now, again, I want to be clear that Paul is talking about Jesus. There is no sense in which um, we are the Savior of our wives, but... It's interesting to me that Paul uses Jesus and his relationship to the church as an example of how we are to relate to our wives. In fact, I would go so far as to say that as the head of the wife, we should have it as our deep desire to see our wives continually transformed into the beautiful, spotless bride of Christ to lead our wives. Our leadership ought to reflect Christ's desire for her to be sanctified, 
holy, washed by the water of the Word, all to the end that she might be part of the glorious bride of Christ. No spot, no wrinkle. We're not talking physically, guys. No spot, no wrinkle, but holy and blameless, which means we should actively be involved in our wives' spiritual development, growth, and maturity. We do that by praying with them, sharing with them, leading them to Scripture, setting the example of being men of the Word ourselves. Listen to me. We need to be men of the Word before our wives, for our wives, and to our wives. Next principle, actually found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, where Paul adds this thought. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. The principle, love her without bitterness. What do I mean? Marriage has the greatest potential for joy and the greatest potential for disappointment and bitterness of any relationship on the planet. You know that's true. The closer you get to someone, the more that person can hurt you. Paul says, as we give ourselves up for our wives, listen, there is potential that they will disappoint us, that they will let us down. I, you know, I imagine a little bit like the bride of Christ occasionally lets him down. We are to love our wives without bitterness, without resentment, forgiving them just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Listen, this without bitterness means that we hold nothing to their account. Some of you, listen to me, some of you have a, a wife who needs to hear you say, I will never hold this to your account again. How to love, number seven, Ephesians 5, verse 28, and to love my wife as my own body. The principle is the same as when Jesus was asked, what's the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second one is just like it. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Listen, love your neighbor as yourself. How, why is it that, that we can think of doing that with almost everyone except our wives? We apply that verse at work, you know, Sometimes at church, well, most of the time, because you know we're here, but at home, well, seldom. And yet I would suggest that that loving your neighbor as yourself should begin there. Who is, after all, your closest neighbor? I'll give you a hint. She sleeps next to you. That's why the verse says, love her as your own body. In fact, you go on in verse 30 to make this point, she is your body. She's a member of the body of Christ. We're members of one body. Treat her like it. Two more, verse 29, when Paul talks about loving your own body, he makes this statement, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. If I love my wife as Christ loved the church, I will first nourish her. What does this mean? Nourish. It literally means to feed, to cause to grow, to bring maturity, teach, instruct, and care for her. This means to make sure that her needs are met. The idea is that I will provide for my wife's needs to grow, ready? Spiritually, emotionally, relationally, and physically. 
We are to encourage our wives in their relationships with other women. We don't get jealous of that. We encourage that relational need. We actually encourage them spiritually to be involved. We don't resent the time that they spend in the Word or in ministry. We actually communicate with our wives in such a way as to meet their emotional and relational needs. We actually encourage our wives to take care of themselves physically. And we do that last one in such a way that we know that, they are, that we are concerned about their physical health and not just the way they look to us. Finally, if we love our wives as Christ loved the church, we will cherish, cherish them. Literally, we are to, that means we are to keep them warm, we are to comfort them, we are to pour out tender love that warms them, cherish. This will then meet one of her primary needs, that of security. You care for her in such a way that she knows that you are committed to her that there is no one else but her, and there never will be, that she is valued and she is cherished. And there you have it. We are to love our wives just as Christ loved the church. That means unconditionally, unceasingly, and sacrificially. It means I will give myself to her and not just my gifts. I will pour my life out to her in a way that transforms her into the image of Christ. I am um, uh, to love her without bitterness, no matter how she might have hurt me or may hurt me. I am to love her as my own body, meaning I will nourish and cherish her. Men, I am convinced, I am absolutely convinced that if we acted this way toward our wives, there would be no such thing as a women's liberation movement. There would be no uh, a national organization for women who would join. They would feel honored. They would feel cherished. They would feel valued. They would revel in their high and holy position. You see, because I believe that at the heart of every redeemed woman is a desire to follow her husband's godly leadership and to respectfully and joyfully submit. I believe that. And so, my relationship with my wife is to mirror Christ's relationship with His bride, the church. Does it? There is no greater place in all the world to demonstrate the love of God, no greater place in all the world to demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ than in your homes. Does it? So, I'll, men, I am asking you to commit. I am asking you to say the words to her, I will love you as Christ loved the church. I, I will. Father, would you help us, overwhelming as this example of Christ and His bride, the church, is, would you help us to be a group of men who love our wives, who lead them in godly ways, who take on the responsibility of caring for and supporting and nurturing and cherishing our wives. Would you help us? Because we can't do it without you. In Christ's name.
Well, a sermon like this can be overwhelming, and so it's appropriate that we today come together to the Lord's table as we're reminded that